I just we just had we just had lunch and we're coming back in, into sort of recording after lunch and I had some uh, crisps that promised forty five percent less fat, but mm-hmm. I've been eating these things for months and I'm still the same size as I am. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about dialogue. Yes. <laughs> Which two people need to speak to make The irony. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's creating realistic dialogue, isn't it? And it, it's, it's Creating realistic dialogue. Or even yeah. creating an unrealistic dialogue that just dialogue. works. <laughs> yeah. But we want yeah, to talk about like our approaches to it. and Because I think we both do it slightly differently. And, and, and we how do. we're... Because this all comes under like building a character and everything. It's quite, quite interesting. So uh, mm. that's what we're going to be talking about. Here is the introduction music. Welcome to Murdering a Podcast, two writers' journey to produce a narrative murder mystery. So let's get straight into this today, because I've got places I need to be as soon as we're done. Um, writing dialogue is its something that I suppose I've done a lot. I, I kind of started with, because I started in scripts. So mm. it's, it was just a sort of a natural thing. Um but if you're starting with prose, I know that there'll be some people out there who've written a lot of prose and maybe, you know, hasn't, haven't done the, the dialogue before. What do we need to know? What's your approach, Tash? How do you start with dialogue? Um, when it comes to prose, I tend to avoid them. <laughs> Purely, very, like, um, being dyslexic, I find it very, very hard to write prose. And it can be quite imaginative in terms of like wrong words in the wrong place and what have you whereas scripts actors tend to use common sense yeah you're not a (laughs) you're not a an author sort of writery person you know you're you're a script writer and you've written scripts and things and that that kind of makes sense and i suppose in that respect we're coming from this exactly the same uh same angle but i've had more experience with with writing prose because it used to be part of what I was doing, but, um, but, but similarly, uh, again, I think we're still approaching the, the actual setting up of dialogue and everything from different angles. Cause I know you're, you're focusing a lot on the psychology of, of your characters. Yeah. Uh, so how do you actually then go, right, this is a line of dialogue that I think that character is going to say. Um, well, it also always starts with my, um, character dossiers. Hold on. Uh, 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 grab one out one that I'm actively working on now so within my character dialogue or within my character um sheets I have or dossiers I have a section called personality style and that tells me how that person's going to speak and so it will be things like um pronoun preference now when I'm talking about pronoun preference I'm not talking she her they them he him I'm talking from a writer's perspective so when we speak um we might use self uh, exclaiming pronouns so I me my we might use team explaining pronouns like I'm using right now which is we us mm-hmm. um and then we might use other um descriptive pronouns which is it that there um as in t-h-e-r-e rather than yes rather than yeah yeah they them (laughs) um so it can get confusing when you're trying to explain it to people because you say pronouns people immediately talk think about she her they them he hims um 
So that's the first thing I can I start with, and that completely changes the structure of your sentence. Um, then I look at the sensory information. So how do they process the world? If you are a visual person, you're going to use visual words like bright, crystal clear. I see what you're talking about. You know, I see, you know, or it looks like. Um, if you use auditory um, sensory or you process in an auditory way, then you're going to say, ah, oh, I hear what you're saying, um, you know, and ah, as clear as a bell, things like that. So you'll have more auditory based uh, descriptive language. Mm -hmm. And then you have the kinesthetic, which is I feel, I think, you know, um, so you'd be more like, I feel this is the truth. I feel that's, you know, so it can change from I see that that, that person's telling the truth. I hear that person's telling the truth. I feel that person's telling the truth. And then when we add the pronouns in, it's I hear or we hear or that person is. So you can, any combination of that, just those right. two in, in themselves can completely change a dialogue or, or a, the way a sentence might be structured or a way that person might say something. Sure, then sure. I look at the communication style. So you've got your passive, passive, aggressive, aggressive and assertive. Um, and again, yet that will change how they speak. So an aggressive person is going to be using more pointed language. They're going to be um, honest to the point where it could be hurtful. Then you have a passive person who's going to be more apologetic, passive aggressive, um, is going to be a lot more sarcastic, a lot more sort of, you know, hidden insults kind of thing. And somebody who's assertive is going to just be, they're going to be honest, but not hurtful, tactful, you know, the ideal way sure, of communicating yeah, yeah, that we yeah. all aim for. Yeah. Then I look at the positive and negative adjectives. And I go on about six-minute x-ray because this is all in there that I learned a lot from there. We did mention um, this in, was it last week's podcast, I think? I think I've mentioned uh, it. We've three, mentioned it a couple of times. Time. Yeah. <laughs> it's the third time. Um, if you're looking at it, you'll see how much I've like labelled it and stuff. And inside it's highlighted and scribbled on. Um, but this is all in there because it's about reading people. And I thought that would be useful. Then I put a very brief vocal description in. And that could be anything from very posh to uses particular words all the time. Mm -hmm. might, um, so we look at, I'll go back over the positive adjective. So in this particular one, it's fine. All right. Okay. Nice loyal, wonderful, bright, um, negative adjectives, bad, vile, nasty, horrible, dis disgusting, awful. Now you don't have to stink to stink, stink to those, stick to those. You don't have to stink, but if you want to, You don't to, have to stink, then but it helps keep people away. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you don't have to stick religiously to them. You can use variations, but those will help you think of the type of words that they might say. Um, I tend not to use a lot of adjective in my writings. I have noticed that recently. I'm like, huh. Um, it depends on the character. I mean, does your character use descriptive, like adjectives a lot, you know, to enhance the description of what happened when they're telling a story? Yeah. Then I use things like temperament. Now, I'm sort of working on that in terms of uh, my own sort of versions of temperament because we've got a very old-fashioned version where you've got the, uh, oh, God, choleric, fl phlegmatic or whatever it is. I can't remember them all. There's four of them. But this comes from a very, very, very old basis of psychology, which was based on the idea that the brain is related to the blood. So one was to do with bodily fluids. One was to do with the Do you mean the, the humours? That's the one. Yeah. yeah. The humours. Um, so I've kind of looked at temperament in a different way and I'm still rewriting that one at the moment and trying to figure out the best way I can I can use temperament to help me describe 
decide how that person's going to speak. Um, I use a brief personality type. So you've got your four A, B, C and D personalities. So I've kept them very basic, um, direct to thinker, socializer. And I can't remember what the fourth one is for the life of me. And then I use a little bit of the Myers-Briggs stuff. Um, so I kind of just build yeah, that's those interesting up. stuff that the Myers-Briggs things. Actually, mm. I think that's quite a useful tool it is a very useful tool i mean it's it's not scientifically proven but it's a good guide i think um, well I, I, it's it's like hor- i know a writer who uses horoscopes um, <laughs> and they just go well okay i'm gonna have a libra in this because i want this or i'm gonna have a cancer in that one and, yeah. and it, it just use it because it's a it's a it's like um it's like using those uh the, the, those cards that you can get that give you a uh, a plot twist and mm. you know you get you're stuck for writing so you pull a card out and it gives you a plot twist well using yeah. you could that essentially a horoscope could be exactly the same thing for your character development you yes know? exactly yeah absolutely i mean these are the things that i personally use but i think as you've just absolutely brilliantly pointed out this you can use whatever you want to be able to help you shape that character which is um, incidentally I, very similar to what i do because I use sort of uh, predefined characters, you know, things that we are, uh, uh, um, things that are within our psyche. Like stock characters. S- like stock characters. Yeah. And build from that. Um, uh, so uh, Peregrine and Windsor, I sort of made no bones about it, is based on Holmes and Watson. Mm. So what's your idea or what is the zeitgeist's idea of what Watson was like? And then you take that and you push it to its, really to its logical absurdity. Yes. Because I'm dealing more with, with comedy. That's that's kind of how it, it, it works. I was going to say that because your characters are designed specifically to be extremely comic, comedic yeah. and yeah. to be funny. So you are, it's yours is a parody really, isn't it? It's a it is, of it is. And then this, this will kind of go into the... <laughs> This will link back to next week's episode as well, where we're going to be talking yeah. about um, the different sorts of things. You, yes, you, yeah, download next week's episode. You'll love it. It's going to be great. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the, but the, that whole uh, system of of um, going, okay, we need a character like this, mm. and then building on out from that and going, how can this character then be so much? more or different or, or uh, you know, what's the twist that they have that makes them that character. And I think once you've got the idea in your head of uh, this is the character's hook, you can then go, how does that character interact with any particular situation? Because you always yeah. refer it back to that hook. You see, I don't use the hook. I probably do, but I do it in a different way. Oh, hello, darling. I've got a pussycat wanting attention um, who's being ever so cute just, on my desk. I, I, I mean, I, I'm going to try and teach you comedy, and if any ever that happens, you need to just drop out the word cat. I am being purposely saying that. <laughs> I am purposely saying, I do know how to be funny, Steve. I am good at comedy. i just not the same style as you. My comedy is very dry, very sarcastic, um yours i think your style of comedy is pushing things to the extreme and just going how silly can i make this very normal sort of i mean that's all based on you know where i i kind of did the comedy that i enjoyed when i was a kid Mm. and i think that if you do go into writing comedy the stuff that that attracts you is the stuff that you were originally drawn to so i'd love the kind of the wordplay of things like 
one fit in the grave and yes minister but at the same time i love the absurdity of the goon show and monty python mm. uh, and hopefully when we get to the point of having scripts and being able to sort of put scripts online for people to read you'll see a kind of mix of that in there so there is a bit of, of word I, there's too many puns i'm fully aware that there's too many yeah, puns. i write like a lot a of pun. innuendos yeah. an awful lot of innuendos in your endo um like i we've got a character called dick in my character in my in my first series Ooh. and the amount of sort of i want you to take dick <laughs> like jokes or like as many dick jokes as we can get in like as many innuendos and this is why like, i think you need to to watch that new mike myers thing on on netflix i'm gonna he's on my it's on my list i'm currently yeah. re-watching one of my old an old favorite it's it's one of those shows that's so bad it's good that i absolutely love um called the sanctuary it's it's oh well, yes it, i know that yeah yeah. yeah yeah the special effects are so bad they're all but it's just so good and it's got amanda tapping in and i have a massive crush on it <laughs> it's like it's like an asylum film are you you're aware of the, the asylum films uh you've prob probably seen them if you haven't probably. if you're not quite if you don't connect them with asylum but they're the um mock busters they call them so they will release the week before um the next thor movie comes out they will release their own version of a thor movie but it's made. They made. They did one snakes on a train, <laughs> and they they do all. The, a lot of them have got kind of like punny titles for the for for things, or they're, they're so uh, they've got one transmorphers, which is you know clearly that they they're trying to kind of push that whole transformers thing. But um, uh, they make a, a lot of money with very low budget films by doing that so you know uh but yeah I, I, i've forgotten what the point was other than uh parodies um i was talking about uh sanctuary you're telling me to watch the Mike oh Myers yeah no, no, no a lot of the asylum films a lot of those because they're made very cheaply the effects in those are a lot like the stuff that you get in sanctuary which was just made yeah. for a big budget when the effects weren't very good <laughs> yeah because it was made I mean, it, it, at it, the it, same time as buffy wasn't it Mm. And it deals with it absolutely, yeah. And it deals with a lot of issues as well. There's one of the th like segregation and and um, acceptance and and things like that. And there's a lot of underlying messages in it, and you can sort of go, mm. oh, it's still relevant today. Um, and Amanda tapping. So I mean, who's, <laughs> who's going to complain about the special effects? I'm not looking at special effects. Very possible. She is oh, like <laughs> I don't know what it is about a badass woman. I love badass women. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure there's something. a joke I can do there about asses, but yeah, like, I, I'm, I'm not, sure there my is. mind is not in that that space right now. Um, but yeah, we were talking about sort of using the hook. I I tend not to have a specific hook. What I do is look at things like negative traits, positive traits, and core wounds. Mm. So I view people through the lens of oh, well, here's another one: a viewing lens. People are broken. People are facts. People are different. People are reasons. Mm. So people are broke. I've got to remember what they all mean. People broken. <laughs> people are broken means you need to fix them. People are facts means they're removable. People are different means everyone's different, but they they won't change. Um, and people are reasons, which means that you equate every behavior to a reason. So, for example, if someone lashes out, well, there's probably a reason for that in their childhood or there's sure. a reason for that that is being triggered. So negative, the, the, the basis of people are reasons is based on the concept that somebody 
has a reason for their behavior. And the idea is that if you have negative traits or really negative or extreme behaviors, the chances are that is to do with a link to a trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is very much, you know, in line with forensic psychology and, and a lot of the stuff that um, like neuropsychology that, that that's going down, which is you know, it's it's the same with an animal. Like if 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 it's if your cat's playing up, I was talking about this earlier. If your cat's causing you mischief, there's probably something you're not doing. <laughs> like, and you just, unfortunately they can't use words to tell you, so they'll just use your jaws up. as a, as a yeah. climbing exercise, as mine do. Yes, um, not my underwear drawers, my clothes, as in fully open drawers. Um, Tash but I is use saying that like, she has a problem with her pussy and her drawers in the middle of the night. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> They like to, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do things that I look at quite a lot of things. So um, again, are they are they disorganised? Because that's going to affect their speech. So there's lots of little things that you can put in, and it depends on how much detail. But my my hook is things like so I can look at the negative traits and I can go, all right, well their associated behaviours are like this. Opportunities for growth. What's going to annoy them? You know, things like that. And if if they encounter something that's going to trigger them say, because of a core wound, which links into their negative and positive behaviours, then I know that if that happens in the show, that or that in That's, a scene... Yeah, that, that needs to, gonna... to react. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's an so, utter dick to, to, to um, edit, though, I'll th- tell you here's that. A, here's a question, because you're, edit- you're on the edit- an edit of... <laughs> I'm a, on the editing uh, yeah, yeah, of something. We haven't talked about sitting down and writing yet, but it's coming up in a... a, a the future episode uh yeah. but um no i was going to ask about you know favorite bits of dialogue from other films or from things that you the sort of dialogue that you want to aspire to blacklist um that is that was always going to be the first one that comes to mind the dialogue and the way they they've clearly done a lot of research in linguistics i think i've mentioned this in a previous thing where I keep I keep bringing it up and I think everybody any aspiring writer if you're writing scripts needs to watch and not just watch but listen to the dialogue in Blacklist I'm on the third run of it because <laughs> there are so many little clues in that dialogue I've, there's, that, yeah there's definitely there's shows like that that I've I've done oh. as well you know you, you go over and you just go god the way that that was constructed was so good you know that the way that that was just put together was just excellent um yeah it's uh, yeah, but because they they really do pay attention with the folk in terms of focusing on nuances of language. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of an actual example that isn't in that show. Um, so, for example, um, somebody might say, um, "Oh, let's say somebody uh, murdered somebody else." Sure. And there's three suspects. The two suspects, if you ask them, are you the killer? They're going to go, no, how dare you? Right. right? The two suspects that are telling the truth. That's right. not, I mean, this is the joy of, of de- like deception detection. There's no hard and fast rules to it, but yeah. they're more likely to get really pissed off with you for a false allegation. Sure. sure. Whereas the person lying can have multiple, you know, is, is, might laugh um, at the they, idea. They, you're saying that they'd have a reaction that... If you were to think about how you would react, might not be or would be outside that. Um, And again, it's it would be yes, absolutely. And again, it would be that it's the phrasing as well. So, if someone says, 
Um, you know, did you kill that person? Somebody who's innocent is likely to say no. They're also more likely to implicate, you know, implicate themselves in things that might make them look guilty. Whereas somebody who's telling a lie we might go, did I kill them? I wouldn't kill anyone, you know? And it, so it's little things like that, or sure. I wouldn't hurt a fly or I wouldn't hurt because they'll minimize it. They'll do right. other right. things. So yeah. there's, but it's not that, again, it's not that hard and fast just because somebody gets angry and says, no, doesn't mean they're telling the truth. It sure. means that they are possibly more likely to, yeah. you know, yeah. they might repeat back what you say just to clarify. Do you mean you're asking me if I killed them? No, I didn't, you know? Right. Um, and again, it's it's things like speech patterns. So knowing when someone's so what someone's speech I mean, pattern that, is. So that's the other thing as well, isn't it? If somebody were were to kind of basically accuse somebody else of something, mm. and the person who was being accused was didn't think that that could ever be something that they were responsible for, mm. the response might not be anger at first. It just might be confusion. Yeah, confusion, shock, fear, anger. Yeah, you, you know, you would expect incredulity. A, incredulity. You're gonna you're gonna expect a range of emotions or mm. a range of different reactions, but they will generally, as a rough rule of thumb, deny what you've just said. Sure. Outright, they'll say, "No, I didn't kill that person, or I didn't kill so and so." Chris Watts is a good example because he's like, "I." It was like I would never harm those kids and things. I think that's what he said. I can't remember, but right. they might say, right. "I would never harm those kids," rather than "I didn't kill my children." This or goes, I goes didn't back kill to, to uh, I would say to Clinton, doesn't it? With mm, when he said that, that woman. woman, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Distancing language. Sure. Um, and again, um, so there's lots of little subtleties. And then there's the baseline. So a, 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 a speech pattern might be I do a lot of contractions, for example. Right. When I'm under, like, so my speech pattern might change. In certain circumstances, I won't contract if I'm trying to make a point. That is actually something I think is 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 good for for character. If you if you know what contractions they would use, because we all use them in some way, shape, or form. It's just that you know, mm. are they are they ones that are going to fit that character? With Peregrine and Windsor, I'm trying not to because it's set in the 1800s, and our idea of speech from the 1800s, even though contractions were a thing, is that they weren't there or that they were a bit more archaic than we're using them now. See, that's another that's another interesting point in dialogue in terms of uh, making it fit the the era that you're writing in because you're writing I'm writing modern day you're writing a lot lot earlier <sighs> yeah late you? 1800s which is a it's an awkward time I mean it's the time that that we all it's it, it's Dickensian Britain essentially um, the the time that we all kind of think about our as our immediate history whereas actually it, it isn't um, I suppose the 40s and 50s are our immediate history. Yeah, uh, but it's still considered as in is is in recent history, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's I suppose it's the. But it's like, again. In, I keep in forgetting the we're not in the nine. You know, the when oh, we're, we're now I, in like, yeah, so I know. late in twenty twenty two. Dear Lord, Jesus how did that happen? <laughs> I'm old, dear. I'm old. <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, yeah, I mean that's what I'm. I'm, I'm saying for, for us, the eighties was was the start of everything. Yes. Where uh, so Quite recent history? <laughs> well, yeah. So recent history would have been fifties, sixties, seventies. Yes. You know the the post war war period, whereas 
I'm going back like three generations, really, to late 1800s. But we're mm. aware of it because as a country, we we are almost beholden to it. It's a, you know, Dickens is a big part of, of the imagery of Dickens is a big part of, of how we look at Christmas, for example. I was going to say that with the with the white Christmas, because that yeah. he, it's his fault that we are dreaming of a white Christmas. Blame well, him. <laughs> there's a reason for it as well, because in the early part of his life, Mm. Uh, he lived through the uh, that the last mini ice age, and so yeah. for him at, at Christmas it was a white Christmas every year. So when he yeah. came to write about it, he wrote about his memories of it, which was back when it was snowing. It hasn't snowed at Christmas that often in the UK ever since. <laughs> ever since I remember, I remember one where we got a really beautiful blanket of snow. It snowed right up to Christmas. Yeah. Um. And because I went away for that Christmas, and we was we were doing right. danger sledging with uh, danger sledge, um, and we had we went sledging on Christmas Day, and I I just remembered how amazing it was. And then we were worried about driving back because it was getting worse and worse, and we were down country sure. lanes. And we woke up on Boxing Day, mm -hmm. gone, yeah, like just gone. And I was like, oh, that was literally the perfect white Christmas. <laughs> it snowed we, Christmas Eve, yeah, and we don't get them. We, um, I mean, we we, but yeah. I, you know, I, we're now we are we literally go one snowflake in London and it's a it's a white it's a Christmas, Christmas. snow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but again, that's that's going to affect things like that's going to affect how your character speaks because. Again, anybody yep. in the 1800s who are a certain age are going to have remembered white Christmases. So their their memories, their experiences are well, going to change. It. That's exactly it. And I think that's one of the reasons why, because um, Christmas Carol was incredibly popular the year that it was published. You know, it's mm. always been popular. It's never sort of stopped being, being I popular. I love that story. Um, and one of the reasons, I think, was because those bits of it spoke to the memory of the people who were sort of contemporary of, of Dickens, um, mm. and 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 they they could see it. It's such a good story, and it's such a good sort of morality tale. Yeah, much in the way that um, uh, Canterbury Tales is as well, actually. But uh, it's such a good morality tale because it worked. Mm. And you can tell when it when things like that work. You know, when when you release a book, and it actually causes social change. It actually. Yes. You know, really make it made a difference. The people started looking about. themselves in the way, but it wouldn't have done that if the story yeah. wasn't wasn't compelling, and if yeah. that that kind of that memory of what a perfect Christmas should be wasn't mm. in there. And yeah, uh, and yeah, so an interesting book, I think it is. But yeah, I mean, again, it's it's going to be slang words as well. With eighteen hundred slang words, are going to be very different to modern day slang. Because I remember I was writing something set in the nineteen twenties, and we were sure. having some great time figuring out. We we're like, why did we not use these slang words today? They're so awesome. I, yeah, um, I hadn't really thought about it, but I've not really dealt with anybody other than Peregrine and Windsor too much, or other than the kind of the 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 upper echelons of of uh, of that society. This next one Sorry. I'm right that I've nearly You've finished just given, with in the workhouse. Sorry, I've, 
that's just made me give me a brain thing. Right. Um, it's given you a brain it's, thing. It's given me a brain thing. I would have hoped you'd had a brain thing before. <laughs> As in, like, something I can do to help me tune my dialogues uh, oh, with, okay. with characters. Is, okay. Do they use slang? I mean, um, it's just have a section for slang words. Uh, do they use slang? Because, like, for example, your characters yeah. wouldn't use them. Uh, no, um, probably not. But then the people who they're meeting in this next one, where they go to a workhouse where there's people working, they probably will. Yeah, because um, that can make a big difference between, and then colloquialisms and things like that. That's yes. there's so much involved in. But then here's the other problem that you get when you're doing something which is historic. Mm. Do the words that would have been used at the time do they evoke the same feelings? Mm. in today's audience and if not do you have to change them and if you have to change them to what yeah you know it would be odd if in my script i'd, I'd use the word in it because <laughs> just blood. It wasn't... in it blood yeah blah, exactly blah. exactly <laughs> it just wouldn't I can't work do that. well that... i used to be able to do it and then and I'm now i got gloves. injured and so yeah <laughs> my fingers is cold but it, it, again, it's it's that thing of, you know, it, it shows that dialogue is actually quite complex. I mean, how do you check yeah. that your dialogue is natural then? How do you check how it sounds? Well, I, I well, I, you know, I, I suppose that the, the first thing I got into when I was a kid was acting. And then that sort of led me on to the writing. And so my sort of initial response to it is to go, oh, well, if I do that character and I read that character back, does it feel odd to read that character with that dialogue? So when I'm reading Peregrine, I'm, I'm reading Peregrine like, hello, what's going on here? And when I'm reading uh, uh, <laughs> Windsor back, it's, Peregrine, I don't know what's going on. You know, it, it's so... If I can do that in that voice, in that way, and I and and that character then hits the right jokes with the right inflection as well, then I know that it's going to work sort of later down the line. Even if people sort of change the character, take the characters to be what they uh, they want them to be, because I know that the the core of it, the idea of that character, is still going to going to play uh, play across. I use something I do similar. I think that's an actor thing as well. If I think it's beneficial if you're writing scripts to to have had some acting experience. Yeah. Because I'll put all my voices. So when I'm when I'm reading Max, I'll talk to her. I I put her in my voice with my Max voice. And I put and so it it, what works for Max, Mm. Max's voice doesn't work for somebody else's voice. So I get what you mean on it. And I I find myself doing that as I'm doing it. I find it fun when I'm trying to read two different characters like Max and Oliver. Oliver's a Russian Russian ex KGB agent who's just this. He's got quite a strong sort of. Um, Oliver's a funny character. Yeah, <laughs> I love Oliver. I love. He's one of my favourite characters. Um, but yeah, he's got quite a. He's got a strong Russian accent, mm. um, and he speaks quite. He doesn't have much me- melody to his voice, um, and sometimes when I'm sort of switching between Max and, and Oliver, when I'm trying to read out the scene alone, I get them muddled up. <laughs> And I'm like, no, 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 do the scene again. Um, but yeah, I find reading it reading it back massively helps. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and hearing it back as well, you know, um, yeah. I've always found that the uh, if you're writing a sketch, it will live or die not necessarily on people reading it, but on the table read. Yes. Uh, that's when you know something works or doesn't, when you've got other people sat in a room with you and, and a joke doesn't land. At that point, you either need to go, it's... 
it's good enough and it takes us from A to B, and then it's a line of dialogue as opposed to a joke, or uh, it needs rewriting to a point because I need the laugh there, I need that on that particular beat. Um, yeah. And that's going to be very dependent on on, on your script and, and the way that you want to put that together. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's again, it... it it really that table read does make such a difference because again I can sorry just backtracking something that just popped into my head another thing that I find very very useful is to see if I can swap the characters with the dialogue because if you can swap the characters over then they don't have independent voices sure sure so if I've got um say two characters I'll use Max and Oliver for example because I've mentioned them if Max and Oliver or actually no Max and Ivana because that Ivana Faulkner is her is her partner you can imagine the fun that she has with that one um so you've got detective Max Powers and detective Ivana Faulkner and between the two of them, they've got two very, very different voices, or they're supposed mm. to have very, very different voices. They have a lot of dialogue together. Mm. And what I tend to do with those scenes when they're to, when they're in the same room is I swap their characters over and I go, does right. this still work for that character if I just swap the character who says it? And if it still works for that character, I know I haven't done enough work yeah. on yeah. their individual voices. Yeah. So if Ivana, if the, if the lines are interchangeable, depending regardless of the characters... It doesn't work. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, to some extent, I think that's right. I think, I mean, any line of dialogue can be modified to fit a particular character. But um, sure. Yeah. I, I think if you've written something for a character and it's, it's, it can be read by anybody, that I think that's probably a, uh, a problem. Mm. Um, a problem in 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 that. So, what about actual actual dialogue? Is there any actual kind of lines of dialogue that stand out for you as being sort of, Really, you know, the the thing again, like stuff that you want to actually emulate in some way, shape, or form. The only one that, as soon as you say lines of dog, dog, the lines, lines of dialogue, of dog, I just, what in God's lines name's of dog, uh, lines of dialogue. I immediately just think um, Hannibal Lecter with I ate his kidney with a nice, what was it? I ate his kidney with fava beans and a nice candy. <laughs> right, yeah. But that, I don't know why. It's just because it, it, that's <laughs> always been a line that's stuck in my head. Um, I've, I've always liked. I mean, I, I, I like. I said, I, I like that kind of wordplay of of uh, of stuff. Anyway, so I always like it when there's a good gag mm. that's within there. I, my one of my favourite jokes is in One Foot in the Grave, where they find a dead cat in their freezer. It's crawled in there and it's frozen to death, and then that happens and that moment happens in that episode and then later on in the episode one of their friends has been telling them about um a uh their their uh, an organization that they're in and there's been a really there's been a massive fraud committed and they use the line it's got so bad we've had to freeze the kitty and it's the reaction to that from margaret the yeah. sort of the stop the do, do they know, you know, that, that yeah. moment? It's just, it's so well done. And it's also stuff like in, in Yes Minister, there's, uh, there's just these massive, massive reams of dialogue that Sir Humphrey does. And occasionally Jim Hackett has, has the old one as well. Uh, so things like, um, uh, the, the only way 
to understand the press is to remember that they pander to readers' prejudices. And yeah, says, that's actually a very true statement. It is. Hacker <laughs> says, don't tell me about the press. I know exactly who reads the papers. I might get this wrong, but uh, the Daily Mirror is read by people who think they run the country. The Guardian yeah. is read by people who think they ought to run the country. Uh, the Times is read by people who actually do run the country. The Daily Mail is read by the wives of people who actually run the country. The Financial <laughs> Times is read by people who own the country. The Morning Star is read by people who think the country ought to be owned by another country. And the Daily Telegraph is read by the people who think it already is. And then Sir Humphrey <laughs> says... What about people who read The Sun? And Hacker says, Sun readers don't care who run the country as long as she's got big tits. Yeah, well, I would say that. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those, you know, it's a lot of wordplay. Yeah. But it's, it's but, uh, you know, there's a fundamental truth inside it as well. I think that it's quite, it's quite nice. Um, I, I can't for one second thing that I will write anything that is anywhere near as good as that but it's I'm, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the, there's a beautiful piece of dialogue and I just cannot you know when you sort of go you, you have it in the back of your head and, and then as soon as someone says can you think of it you go I have <laughs> <laughs> my brain has gone on vacation it's like no no bye um <laughs> oh god what was it it's it's probably a Terry Pratchett. Oh yes, no, it's it's a Terry Pratchett line, and it, for no other reason than it is an infinite. It is infinitely true, um, which is a line by Death. And I think you know which line I'm about to say. With all the, I and I can't know. get, Death's I can never got get some it right. Really good ones. Oh, I can never get it 100% right, but it's something along the lines of, with all the wonders and miracles in this in this universe that we have, it's amazing how the humans have invented boredom. And it's like... Yeah. Uh, okay. It was written so much better than I could ever, ever say it, but it was just... <laughs> that one, it really struck a chord with me, and I was like... Sure. Oh, yeah. And yet, it's deemed a mental illness or a, or a dysfunction if you don't like to be bored. And I'm like... Well, hold on. With all the marvels and all the wonders in this world, <laughs> how can you possibly be bored? Yeah, like, there's so much to do if you if you actually look around and, and kind of. And I, I've that. I've made the there mistake really of saying that to a therapist. Is like I, they said, "Oh, do you get bored?" And I was, they were talking about boredom, and I was like, "I don't get bored." And they were like. Yeah. Oh, uh, but that is a sign of a mental illness. That is that is one of the symptoms listed in schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder is that you don't suffer from boredom. Yeah, and and I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not that I don't suffer from boredom. I just don't get bored because you know, there's so was, much fucking shit around. When I was growing up, and I used to say to my parents that I was bored, they'd say, "Well, find something to do then." Yeah, and I I've, got be I've, creative or be productive, but don't bother me. I've I've. <laughs> sort of grab. I mean, uh, yeah, they yes, they weren't quite like that. But I've always <laughs> kind of grabbed onto that that thing. Is uh, well, if I'm bored, it's my fault, yes. and I either find something to do or I do. But actually, that's a uh, that's a good kind of life lesson. If you mm. think that something needs to be done, you've got to be the person to do it because no other fucker's going to do it for you. Yeah, it's that thing of you know, it, it's 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 very like you said. It's it's if you are bored, we've well, only got yourself to blame for it because there's so much that you can do to keep yourself entertained like even if i'm doing a boring task i gamify my tasks um yeah. i make yeah. them fun i'll be like and and i'll put music on and i'll see if i can type to the beat of the music and things like that and um 
you know, if I'm typing or I, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, I try to sort make of, I've, I've never done quite, quite that, but definitely, but I think, you know, finding it, breaking stuff down and going, uh, okay, well, instead of thinking about it like this, my next step is to do this. So I'm going to focus on that. It's not yeah. exactly gamification, but it's, um, it, it, it means that I, what I quite like is being able to tick a box when I've done something. And that means that I've achieved something, you know? Mm. And so to be able to do that lots of little times is better than having to wait until the end and do it once, one big time. It's nowhere near yeah. as satisfying when you've only done it once. Yeah. Much like, no, I'm not going to go that down there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's the... Um my brain just went down straight down that road and I'm going, no, come back, come back, come back, come back. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is the thing. I mean, I've, I've never understood boredom because yeah. I've always found something to do. My, my version of what boredom would actually look like is very different to most people's because it would take so such sure. an extreme level of fuck all to do. And even when I've got nothing to do, you're I'm still- like, you're well, still, how your can mind I be bored? Yeah. I've got all these wonderful things in my head that I can well, work I, through. I mean, I've never got anything to nothing to do, but I sometimes try and engineer days where I'm doing nothing. Yes, just oh, yeah, really I that so that I I don't I don't kind of burn myself out, you know. Yeah, I do it once a week. Once a week, I do what I call enforced boredom, and even then, I'm not bored. It's like it's, but it's, it's good for you, I think, because it gets your mind working. It gets yourself. You know, yeah. really it's a day where I get to be completely unproductive. Yeah. I don't have to do anything. I don't even have to get out of bed if I don't want to. I've got yeah. a kettle in my bedroom, so I don't even have to get out of bed <laughs> except to feed and, and de-poop the cats. That's it. I don't literally de-poop the cats. I de-poop their cat litter trays. Um, but it's, um, I just have an image of me squeezing the cat going, de-poop, de-poop. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's that. It, those in for and 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 it, we're in a society where we where people put so much pressure on you to be productive. And I, I see it on Facebook all the time on social media. Oh, I didn't do anything to I feel really bad. And I'm like, but when was the last time you did nothing? And they're like, yeah. oh no, I'm just being lazy. When was the last time you did nothing? Oh, about six months ago. Right. Well, then this is a yeah. good thing. Doing nothing is it, actually isn't, one isn't of the, the most thing. brilliant things that you can do for your body and your brain. Yeah. You know, one day a week, one day a week where you do feck all. That's what Sundays are for for me. Um, Except for eat nice food. Um, I'll cook a Sunday lunch if I can be bothered. Um, but it's that one day a week where you do nothing. And it just, it really does give you time to just go, and stop. You know, I watched <laughs> crap worth, on Netflix on that day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I th- it, uh, going back to that whole, uh, you know, you have to do this, these things for yourself. It's just as true with finding time to relax or finding time to to not do anything as it is with finding time to do stuff. Yeah. Although I am reminded of another Terry Pratchett quote from Amazing Morris, which is, if you don't turn your life into a story, you just become part of somebody else's. Yes. And again, I mean, if you want quotes, Terry Pratchett is full of amazing, amazing, life-changing... I, I think li- largely, if you want Terry Pratchett quotes, we will probably have them. Yeah. I have to now read all of his books again. Um, well, I, I'm just about... I've just got... Because uh, they've released new audio versions of them, and the problem with the old audio versions of them was that they were all mastered on tape, so they've all, always got this massive tape hiss running all the way through them. Great people were doing it, you know, like Nigel Planius 
Plainer, Nigel Plainer, um, Celia Emery, uh, Stephen Briggs, who did a good chunk of them. But uh, they weren't particularly well recorded and they were in many cases very tinny and stuff. They've just started re-releasing and they're going to do all 40 books again. Uh, the recent ones, they've just done, they've put all of the witch ones out. Um, mm. And um, Lords and Ladies in particular, Masquerade I and Witches Abroad books. are three of my favourite Pratchett books. So obviously I had to get those, obviously. Um, and yeah, well, I'm I've going got to my collection to behind me. <laughs> That's my collection of Trap Pratchett. Um, just sorry, I'm just, when you were saying that, I remembered something that we were doing in our tech, because I do a table read every Tuesday night with a load of other actors and we just right. grab Right. plays that we read and some of them are amazing some of them are rubbish <laughs> and some of them are everything in between and it's just as important to read bad work and I saw a quote on Facebook and I can't remember who said it but so it wasn't my quote but they said it's just as important to read bad things as it is to read good things um but one that we read and it was called bing bong and it's it's two people very clever wordplay two people trying to have this conversation they're having an affair and they're trying to have this last conversation before they fly away yeah and every now and again you just get bing bong with the announcer i was doing the announcer right um and the announcer gets more and more passive aggressive as it goes past and the way they play on the misunderstandings with the dialogue is so beautiful because they don't hear everything that the other person is saying it's like you love me no you don't love me. How dare you? Yes. Yes, I do love you. What I said was bing bong. And then she does another announcement. So you right. never actually hear. The but action, it's done. Yeah. But you do in the script itself, you see what they're supposed to be saying. So the actors understand it. Yeah. But the way they they twist it and the way they do the misunderstandings is so, so clever. Right, Such a right. short, um, short thing. But it was it was so good. And another one, oh God, something. Oh my god! It had a character in it called Alvira. Um, ah, something. Oh, I can't remember it. Um, another one was I Claudius, but the I Clavdivs. I Clavdivs. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, there's... there is actually there's a there's a YouTube channel called Red Letter Media, and mm. they have a thing on it called Best of the Worst. And essentially, what they do as a group, four or five of them will sit down and and watch old 80s, usually 80s, 70s or 80s B-movies, really bad ones, and then Mm. they comment on them. And they themselves have gone through like film school and stuff. So when they comment on them, they go, oh, but this this seems like it should have been this sort of film and do this. And they will comment on bad dialogue and they'll comment on um, uh, the uh, the problem that um, uh, of, of production that has caused this thing to be a, a big problem. Or they'll comment on bad storylines and things like that. And it's really been... It's, it's been great listening to people who kind of know what they're talking about, um, actually speaking about these films in a, I, I suppose it's constructive criticism rather than just laughing at it and saying how bad it is. See, I, I quite like one called um, uh, Cinema Therapy, where they've got a filmmaker, a professional yeah. filmmaker and a professional psychologist mm. who are best friends. 
and they watch watch a film and they talk about the psychology behind it yeah. and the psychology of the characters. And it's so fascinating about things. Like they did one called with, for Inside Out and they were saying, actually, this is a beautiful way to help children understand uh, healthy emotions. Yeah. I spoke yeah. about... But I, I was um, thinking more about, you know, uh, when you said, you know, it's worth watch, it's worth reading bad things as well. Bad things, yeah. You know, the best of the worst really is a, a kind of a, a lesson in... Uh, I was going to say, if you want to watch something bad, bad Twilight. Just <laughs> worst written thing ever. I mean, seriously, it is literally about a, a, a toxic relationship. This this poor girl just keeps going back to this toxic guy who's really abusive, the vampire. And then in the last episode, it's about paedophilia. And you're like, wow. Twilight An adult man is, not, wants to- is not the worst thing ever. Fifty Shades of Grey, however. Oh, okay, yeah, no, that is the which worst is thing ever. Twilight fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, that they it's repurposed kind of, for legal reasons. It's kind of like, yeah, it's a very close. <laughs> Those two <laughs> terrible films. I mean, essentially, Fifty Shades of Grey is about sexual assault, and yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that's that, and and phrased as a as a as a fetish, and you're like. Why? Why are people seeing this as a porn thing, or as a as lighthearted, or as a sexy book? It's not. It's, I, yeah, it's about it's, a woman who's getting yeah. taken advantage of. But I think that's and, one of those those uh, times where the sort of the BDSM community piped up and said, "No, hang on a minute. These we yeah, put all of these protections in place to make sure mm. these things don't happen because we're very careful about this sort of thing." And yeah. and yet, you know, mainstream audiences either don't understand that or, or have a, a a twisted view of what those things are to begin with you know yeah they don't they don't understand it at all and i think and it, and of course that then just perpetuates really unhealthy myths and then this is where you get this is where the danger of film is uh, you, you were saying it can change make social change and sometimes for the better but sometimes not so much for the better sometimes for the worse because when they portray uh, netflix has done some really good things um they did you and uh, Kevin can go fuck himself. So you is about the the deconstruction of the romantic comedy, mm-hmm. the rom coms, and essentially the positions the stalker, the psychopath stalker, as the romantic comedy guy stalking random women. It's very much like the story of Pepe Le Pew. This guy mistakes the identity of a woman, stalks her, encapsulates her, like you know, all in the game of trying to, you know do something um thinks he's this hero killing people around them i can't really tell you too much that's why i'm being vague because it gives away the story i'm very sure. good at giving away storylines <laughs> um so but you it takes the idea and you you'll see him he'll get into this situation he's stalking this woman he gets into the situation and then he'll just pipe up you just hear his in the thoughts and he goes oh i'll be fine this happens in romantic comedies all the time um right and it's just a really, really clever way of doing it. They they just reframe it, and then, and, but when you then go back and watch things like Notting Hill or, or the other romantic comedies, where when I was a kid, I was going, "Woo, this is great!" Um, but then as suddenly, an adult, you, you can see where those things aren't really, uh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, instances. I mean, that, that's the thing. The, the so things unhealthy. like Notting Hill <laughs> are fairy stories that adults tell them st- themselves. But actually, but then, if you break down a fairy story, it's pretty horrific. Even mm. even for the if you're the protagonist, the things the protagonist yeah. do are pretty horrific as well. Yeah. So yeah, that kind of makes sense. That that, that kind of that's how it sort of with the everyone. In, yeah, absolutely. With everyone who fuck. Uh, so what was it? So sorry. Uh, Kevin can go fuck himself. Again, a brilliant take where they they deconstruct the idea of um, sitcoms using 
essentially abusive relationships for entertainment purposes where uh, very i mean if you remember marriage with children it was an abusive man and his long-suffering wife and we were laughing at that because we didn't recognize that as abuse and what they've done is they've done they've taken that and turned it on its head and gone well they they use brilliant cinematography and mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm. to, to to explain that actually whilst it looks like this comedy and then when she it's not it's abuse so you see sure, it whenever sure. he the the abuser's there it's in this light-hearted sitcom lighting every, canned laughter and then it mm. follows her out the room and all the canned laughter goes away the lights dull down and you just see her go fuck okay right right Okay. Yeah. So the so the comedy of it is the, I don't mean the comedy in it, but the comedy of it is is the, uh, the way that she is dealing with the abuse that's happening, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And if you've been in an abusive relationship and you watch that, you kind of go, "Oh my god, I wreck it." Yes. <laughs> you kind of just go, "Yes," because when you're with your abuser, you're trying to make everything okay, and you go bigger than that. And when they're doing something, you go, "It's okay," because the only emotion you're allowed to show is extreme happiness <laughs> anything else and you're punished for it and so that's that's really and then when you walk away and you're in, on your own in your private time you kind of you stop and you go okay i'm exhausted and then you have that time where you doubt yourself and you wonder what you're doing wrong and and it really does beautifully show how this works and the dynamics in such a good way but it does it by deconstructing that sitcom genre and i think that's written just going back on to, to to how it's written the dialogue the way they change the dialogue between when they're demonstrating it as the you know it, it's mm. presenting it as this sitcom mm. versus when they're showing what what's actually happening behind the scenes and how it's affecting sure. her psychologically sure. incredible dialogue and incredibly well written yeah. um you know use the same as well because you can for once that you, you get to really hear the justification of this psychopath and you know he's, he's genuinely justifying you watch what he's doing and it's these horrific things you can hear him some of the justifications you can't help but laugh at because you're just like why <laughs> what mental gymnastics you know gold medal for that one but it's, so that's if you wanted to catch up on those that's you and kevin can go can f himself go f himself i think yeah. we can say fuck i think it's all fuck. right we're, oh, no, we're no, allowed no, to be explicit on i don't know i don't care you we're wouldn't let me swear on the first one i don't well i no, no, as a as a rule of thumb but if it's a title of something it's a bit different oh, okay, <laughs> um so um, uh, just a bit a bit of a recap uh we mentioned in this this thing uh six minute x-ray which there will be mm. a link in the show notes also um there is a book by gloria kempton which is really good which it talks about dialogue as being a kind of a natural extension of breathing. Uh, you now know I have to buy this book yet. Oh, I know. Sake. You, you know, know I'm going to have links for all of this in the show notes as well, yeah. so you don't need to write it down here. Um, so it's called Techniques and Exercises for Crafting Effective Dialogue, uh, and it's in her Write Great Fiction series. That's really worth uh, getting hold of, uh, as is... Um, Robert McKee's book, The Art of Verbal Action for Page, Stage and Screen, uh, which has got a lot of easy to follow examples of both good and bad dialogue as well. So that's really worth grabbing hold of. 
Um, yet suddenly, as I was saying that, that felt like the wrong thing to say. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> and if you really want to, <laughs> you really want to have a look at sort of more um, realistic and or the way that you can use realistic dialogue to create dramatic effects. Uh, there's a book called Writing Dialogue, funnily enough, um, by Tom. Chirella, Chirilla, something like that. But anyway, yeah, uh, there will be links in the show notes to all of those things. Uh, this has been Murdering a Podcast, talking about dialogue. And as we get into more scripting stuff, and as we have our scripts available, it's probably a good idea to do another one of these dialogue sessions at some point. There is one more book I would recommend. Okay. Um, if you're writing criminal dialogue, and I've got to find it because I've just bought it. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking on my Amazon list now because I've literally just bought it from, um, oh, come on, Tash. Stop being, oh, that's why, because I'm clicking on the wrong bloody thing. So it's called Word Crime, Solving Crime Through Forensic Linguistics. So if you're writing murder mysteries and things, that's actually worth, it is worth looking into forensic linguistics. I haven't read the book, so I can't guarantee it's any good. Okay. But that's what I, I, I literally again. Just I will make a note of it in the in the show notes, and and that's Once what I've all the typing it, was about. But it is. Uh, that's it for us for this this week. Hope you've enjoyed it. I, I dialogue honestly is because it's a big chunk of what you do as oh, a writer God, yeah, so is, is such an interesting thing to talk about and i'm sure we'll come back to it because i'm sure there'll be parts where we might want to analyze our writing and and, and stuff so we'll get to that eventually yeah. until then though thanks ever so much for we've, watching we've at least managed to get 10 percent of this that's useful because that's our promise 10 that's our of promise 10 percent of this be... will be useful just enough <laughs> just enough to keep the agents happy <laughs> Um, so I'll stop interrupting you now. You carry on. <laughs> yes, that's it for today. Uh, do come and join us over at Murdering a Podcast, where you can find show notes and all sorts of other things as well. Sorry, murderingapodcast.com. I keep forgetting dot that. Com. Dot com. Where dot we discuss all of those other things. We'll see you next time, folks. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. That was Murdering a Podcast, and if you'd like to find out more information about the podcast, the Mystery Lounge, or anything mentioned in the show, please head over to murderingapodcast.com. The music was The Secret of Tiki Island by Kevin MacLeod, and the producer was Steve Meller. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>